Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us, science at newstalk.com, or you can find us on Twitter. We're at News Talk Science. And thanks as always for subscribing, downloading, rating, um, letting people know about the program. Uh, we really do appreciate it. Coming up on this week's episode, uh, we're going to be hearing the fascinating story of a marine biologist who observed what appeared to be a complete anomaly in animal behaviour humpback whales being altruistic, behaving in a way that cannot be explained. It's a fascinating story. Uh, We'll get to it in a few minutes' time. But first, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD and from Science Foundation Ireland, Dr. Ruth Freeman. You're both very welcome. Our first story, Ruth, has to do with gender quotas. So this is one of the large research funders in Australia, the National uh, Health and Medical Research Council. And they've just announced that at mid and senior career level, they're going to give 50% of the grants that they give out to men and 50% of the grants they give out to women and non-binary individuals who apply to them. Uh, And it is, as you say, a a kind of quite radical and maybe controversial step. I think quotas are always a bit controversial, particularly when you're talking about something like research funding, which is all about the best ideas the best people. The supposed um, meritocracy the of The supposed science. meritocracy. And of course, you know, that that's that's a big part of the discussion here. How do we decide on what those things are? And of course, what we do is we, in science, we usually use peer review. So that's the system whereby other scientists look at the work, they look at the track record of the scientist and they decide which are the best applications that have been made to a funding agency. But, but a lot of places have steered away from quotas because, you know, there has been fear of a backlash to say, well, it's not the best people and it's not the best science. Um, I mean, this change in Australia has come about because of a backlash when uh, a couple of years ago, uh, men were about 50% of the applicants to the grants, but they were 56% of the grants went to men, uh, but they got more of the money. So over 60% of the money went to men. And again, that's a common trend. Male researchers tend to apply for more money and tend to get more money. At the senior level, though, one thing that is interesting, and we see it here in Ireland too, uh, the percentage of people who apply to a fund is usually pretty reflected in what comes out the other end. So if 80% of the applicants are men, we tend to see about 80% of the recipients being men as well. So, I mean, one of the big issues here is that we don't see as many senior women in science. Yeah. Um, So that's probably at the heart of the problem that that they're trying to tackle here. Obviously, the, the the decision will get some sort of scrutiny. How will it affect science and scientific research in Australia? Do you think it will have a tangible effect on the quality of science because of this shift? I mean... The, the backlash has already started online, uh, as expected. Um, I mean, look, here in Ireland, I think we've taken a slightly different view, which is we've said, look, one of the critical things is to get more women up that career ladder and get them in. And I think we've also tried to address how do you judge what is good? Because I think a lot of the reasons why we have a lot more senior men at levels is because how we have defined good has played to a more linear career where people haven't taken breaks and, and it's all very number driven. So, you know, I, I think 
think possibly there's there's subtler ways to intervene and, and get it get a different outcome. I mean, there are concerns here. They're going to continue to do this at the mid-career level in Australia, where things are actually equalising. And, and they also have interventions at the junior level, where potentially that means fewer women might get funded. Um, you know, so, so I think, you know, quotas are, are always challenging. And I think there's going to be people who, who don't like them. There are some people who will say, look, if we hang around and we don't have quotas, it'll take us the guts of 80 or 100 years to yeah. get any kind of parity. Mm-hmm. So people have taken these dramatic steps. I mean, it, the peer review is probably not such a fine instrument that by the time you're you're kind of getting to making decisions that the, the mid-ranked or, you know, the upper mid-ranked people, you're being that discriminatory anyway. I mean, in certain circumstances, we in SFI have moved to using lotteries and, and other funding agencies like in Switzerland are doing that now too. Where you reach a certain level of excellence and after that, it's a lottery as to who gets funded. Exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, you can you can see why um, people would have problems with quotas. I sort of sit, sit in that camp that you'd, you talked about saying, you know, if you leave it up to the market, you'll always have uh, homeless people on the streets. It's a similar sort of approach for me when it comes to, to quotas. I, I realise that women who succeed and are at the very best do so despite ob- obstacles and then may feel like people will think that they are there only because of that. I personally think if we're thinking about the greater good one generation of that and it's over because you'll have the women already succeeding. That's my own personal thoughts. Love to hear from you. You can email us science at newstalk.com or you can text us for 30753106. What do you make of the idea of, of bringing in quotas for funding research? Shane, our second story uh, has to do with something uh, we've touched on a number of times in this programme. Time, which is just one of the most befuddling things in, in, in the human experience. And this is to do with clocks. Yes, um, it's brilliant. My favourite unit is the second, right? Uh, I just think it's absolutely fantastic. I've gone to visit the atomic clock when I was in Boulder, Colorado last, and it's fascinating. And so it, it defines the second. So th- the concept of a day is defined by how long it takes for the Earth to rotate. A year is the Earth going around the sun. But the second is arbitrary, right? We just need a short unit of time and it, we have to be able to measure it accurately. But it doesn't relate to anything, Right? Yeah. There's nothing that happens that takes a second naturally, right? So, True. so we had to go and, and find something uh, that would be able for us to define exactly what a second is. And all other units of time in physics are based off seconds, right? And so the official uh, way to re- uh, represent a minute is to say it is 60 seconds because yeah. a second is something we can actually go and define. And femtoseconds uh, are this, the uh, fraction the of it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So what we've been doing since the 60s is using atomic clocks And so we use uh, an element called cesium and a particular isotope of it. And we define one second to be 9,192,631,770 oscillations of a microwave radiation that the atoms absorb and emit when switching states. Now, that's a, a mouthful for basically saying something that is very, very steady within that atom. And that's why we use it. It's, it, it doesn't vary. So yeah, it's, If we didn't have the second before we got precise clocks, we probably would just change the length of the second to make it much easier to <laughs> Yes, I, I kind of wish they had done that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, it's so close to 10 billion. <laughs> Can we not yeah, just exactly. make a second a little longer? So um, that's okay, but it only gives you a certain amount of like fractions of a second, right? So we need something that's a little bit more finer detail, right? Oh, you, when you say we, you mean just physicists, physicists yeah, yeah, not exactly. human beings or well, anyone practically. The stuff that you're going to use will be uh, from it. But yes, at the moment, it's just physicists. And we're interested in optical clocks, so moving from the atom to the optical 
clock. And they use high frequency ticking of elements such as strontium, or my favourite, ytterbium. And they're able to uh, uh, use those because you can slice them into finer uh, fractions, right? So that's fantastic. We have a new way to do it. But the, the tricky thing here is that you, for any of these clocks, you need more than one. And then you, um, so you join all the clocks together and you average, and that's your second. And so the tricky bit here has been getting optical clocks to talk to each other. And so you need um, to, uh, for them to communicate with one another. And that's what this paper has, has done in China. They have been able to use lasers um, that are, are, are able to connect all of these optical clocks together and to do so in a kind of um, a part of the, the optical spectrum where, where it works very, very well. So we're, we're that little bit closer to redefining the second. And that could change people's lives, he says smilingly, uh, for things like being able to measure things to do with relativity and also to do with plate tectonics. So, you know, yeah, I was amazed at that one. Yeah, earthquakes. <laughs> Very good. Uh, Ruth, our third story has to do with stress. It has to do with stress and the smell of stress. <laughs> um, and and it's to do with dogs being able to smell stress. And, and I guess, I mean... Smells, as we all know, I mean, it's kind of uncomfortable when you think about it, but when something smells, it is actually releasing compounds. It's releasing what we call volatile organic compounds that diffuse through the air. And those particles actually go up our nose and attach to receptors in our nose. And, you know, scientists have actually for for a while known that different diseases could have different kinds of smells. Um, So things like diabetes can make your urine smell like rotten apples and typhoid fever apparently turns your BO into sort of a bread cooking smell. Mm. So we've known that different internal conditions change your smell. I mean, the other thing we know is that dogs are very, very good at discriminating between different smells. We use them for all sorts of things, whether it's sniffing out drugs or or whatever. Bombs. Bombs, exactly. Um, So putting these two things together, researchers in Queen's University decided to to test to see if dogs could smell stress. So, So they set up an experiment where they recruited volunteers to give a sample of their sweat and their breath and then undertake a stressful task, a short stressful task, which was basically doing arithmetic under time pressure, which I think we can all agree is quite stressful. Um, And then they took another sample just a few minutes later. And they took those samples and they trained a group of dogs. Uh, in the end, they had four dogs that were able to do this. And they and these were just people's pets, actually. They recruited. It was mm. amazing. They weren't sort of specialised trained dogs. And, and first they... Unfortunately, tra- they had to put them all down after the programme. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they didn't. So, so first they trained the dogs. They gave them uh, the, the sweat smell, the stressed smell to, to smell uh, against two blanks. So they knew they could detect that smell. Uh, and then afterwards, they, they gave them the stress smell and the non-stress smell. And this was only taken minutes apart. So it wasn't the that the people were sort of sweating profusely now. They did take it only from volunteers that said they found it stressful and that had a bit of an elevated heart rate and blood pressure. So they were experiencing some signs of stress. But the amazing thing was that the dogs could pick out the stress sample in almost 94% of cases. So very, very high level of accuracy here. So so what what are the volatile chemicals that we give off when we are stressed? Well, we don't know. And, and it's interesting because you, you think of cortisol straight away yeah. as the stress hormone, but actually that takes a little bit of time to build up. It's more like that happens about 30 minutes or so after that stress response starts to kick in. So, so there's lots of other things going on in your body when you start to get stressed and we can feel stressed in an instant. Yeah. I mean, sweat is one, but again, it wasn't that these people were suddenly sweating a lot because it was only a few minutes, the task, and it was and, and their breath as well. They were picking up compounds in their breath. So, I mean, of course, what they're trying to do now is can we 
what is the molecular fingerprint of those smells? And, and scientists have been trying to do this. Actually, there's a, there's a woman in the UK who can who has been smelling Parkinson's disease, and now they're 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 taking some of that work trying to see what is that olfactory signal. But it's incredibly difficult. Our noses are so good at doing this, and dogs' noses are even better at doing it. Hmm. But it does seem like I mean, there's certainly a detectable difference if you're a dog. And I think the question is now, well, maybe we can use that. Maybe we can actually train support dogs to not just pick up maybe if someone has fallen, but actually also to identify if someone who is relying on that dog to pick up if they're very stressed. Um, You could use those dogs in airports as well for people who are doing things other than smuggling drugs where they already have sniffer dogs. They could just sniff, although everything is stressed. Everyone's stressed in an airport. I think they've just been going along. Freaking out. Um, Our final story has to do with um, more smelling and a bionic nose. Absolutely. And after reading um, or listening to uh, Ruth's story, I'm kind of tempted to think this bionic nose should be for dogs, not not humans. And so, um, like a lot of people have lost their smell due to COVID and lost it permanently. Other people lose it because of various brain injuries. And so it's a a serious thing. And you just heard from Ruth how important the sense is. And so this is work from um, from Virginia, where people have made a bionic nose. So they combined an e-nose, and we come back to that, uh, with a brain implant. Um, it's incredible what they've done. Um, it's incredible because of how scent works. So um, as, as Ruth said, all these volatile chemicals are emitted and they go into our, our olfactory system. But each one has to be detected on its own. So there's a really complex chemistry to it. It's not like the equivalent of photons hitting your eye. Right, where there's only one thing that comes in of different frequencies. They have different shapes. Yeah, and so it's locks and keys. And so to be able to mimic that in an electronic way is very hard. Hmm. But that's what the electronic nose does. So you put on this pair of glasses, right, mainly just because it's something you can hold on your face. It's nothing to do with your eyes. And it has a little uh, sensor in it and it can detect um, basic but like prevalent smells, right, volatile stuff. And then that connects uh, wirelessly to an implant, like a cochlear implant, right? right. That people would use for, for hearing loss. And that in turn then is able to interact with your olfactory bulb and in turn your brain. No. Yeah. So now it's at a basic level, but this is incredible, right? Because the way you're, so as a physicist, I'd say you smell, that interacts with your olfactory nerve, then that goes to your olfactory bulb. And then it goes into your brain. Yeah. I'm sure that biologists are screaming at the radio right now when I'm saying that. But within the brain, it's very complex because you know that with smell, it, it evokes emotion and uh, memory and all of those complex things. So it means there's an awful lot going on in your brain. For sure. Yeah. So to be able to kind of get that information in there is is super important for, for people. Our sense of smell, I think, is well, the most it, I mean, it, it, it is not. You know, it, it is if you have it. I think... I don't know, if I couldn't smell, do I think I'd bother wearing an implant just to be able to smell? It's one of the least important if you senses, can't I think, smell, smelling. No, you see, this, this is it, you see. If you can't smell, you don't taste your food properly. Do you, mm. like, do you like to eat, Jonathan? Damn you, Shane. <laughs> you can't tell if food has gone off. And smell is yes. a really important thing to, to protect us, like vomit and diarrhoea and those infectious things tend to smell bad, so we know to stay away from them. So and All attraction, right, fine. You know? I want to smell. Yeah. Attraction. <laughs> attraction, Jonathan, yeah. Good yeah. job you were married already. You know, maybe you wouldn't be able to find a wife if, uh, if you couldn't <laughs> smell. I did not sniff my wife to marry her. Thank you very much. <laughs> I Re- beg to differ. Really, really interesting <laughs> stuff. Uh, Dr. Shane Burkett from ECT, Dr. Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland. Thanks very much. Do you think altruism is possible in humans? 
I do. Um, in the media, we're always bad-mouthing humans. Uh, they're destroying the planet. They're starting wars. They're making fools of themselves on social media. But actually, they're the only species, as far as we know, that are capable of altruism. And one of my best friends, uh, Claire McKenna, who hosts Alive and Kicking on News Talk, spent the night uh, only last week uh, raising awareness for homeless in, in Dublin with Focus. And she is someone who I know for many altruistic acts and I have to say, it inspires me sometimes because I, 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 there's always something in it for me when I do something. It's terrible to say, but it's true. So altruism is observed in humans, but it does happen rarely enough. What about animals? Bob Pittman is a marine ecologist at the Marine Mammal Institute in Oregon State University. He joins me now. Bob, welcome to the program. Can you tell me about uh, this, the first time you noticed something unusual with humpback whales back in Antarctica in 2009? Um, we were acting as consultants uh, with the BBC. They were interested, uh, they were filming Frozen Planet and wanted to uh, film this wave washing behavior by one of the different types of killer whales down there. That's when these uh, killer whales are swimming through the ice. They're sticking their head out of the water and looking for seals on the ice. And when they find one, they swim away from the ice, turn around and swim at it at full speed kick their tails up at the last second and wash the seal off and catch it on the other side. So we were with uh, killer whales uh, in, in the Antarctic Peninsula area. We had put satellite tags on them, so we were able to follow them around. And one day we found our killer whales, and they had a, a pair of humpback whales that they were interested in. And they were the humpback whales were clearly agitated, so we thought that this might be an attack. So we went over and spent some time with them, and it wasn't quite an attack. There was an adult male killer whale that was swimming in very close around the humpbacks. And the rest of the group was kind of uh, distracted and off to the side. Uh, so it seemed a bit odd, and then they just swam away. We didn't quite know what to make of it. And then one of the um, cameramen said, hey, you should check out this footage. So what it showed was, uh, while we were watching the killer whales, he was filming the humpbacks, and there was a seal among them, a Weddell seal, and it was in between them and around them. And it was pretty clear that the adult male killer whale was trying to get in there and uh, get this seal, but the humpbacks were are too big and actually too dangerous for killer whales. Uh, the male wasn't willing to get in there, and they just finally gave up on the seal and swam away. So... Uh, we were happy that that's, that was a good explanation. The, uh, the humpbacks may not even have known that the seal was there and, and you know, just wanted to keep the killer whales away. And so we were happy with that. So, so you, uh, to, to be clear, you, you saw the, the killer whale trying to attack, but you thought that the agitation of the whales and, and the presence of the seal uh, weren't really necessarily related and, uh, and that the, the behavior didn't necessarily signal any relationship between the, the seal and the whale and, and, until later on. Well, actually, uh, about 20 minutes later, we, when the killer whales left, we just continued following them. And they continued uh, sticking their heads up and looking for seals. And one of them found a crab eater seal on a nice flow and called all of them over there. And we got there about the time that they were beginning to wave wash this seal. And then all of a sudden, the same two humpbacks that we had seen previously, several kilometers away, they showed up 
and were swimming around the ice floe and clearly agitated. They do this really loud exhalations. It's kind of a, a bellowing. It's a, kind of a frightening sound, actually. Can you do an impersonation? Oh, sure. They go, and I, I've, I've been fairly close to humpback that does that, and it'll raise the hair on the back of your neck. It's hmm. such a such a frightening sound. So they're swimming around this uh, ice floe and clearly interested in uh, driving off the killer whales or being aggressive to them. So the, the killer whales eventually just gave up and swam away. So this changed things for us a bit. It wasn't just the case that the uh, humpbacks were there and the killer whales came over to them and they were being agitated, but they were actually pursuing the killer whales. But again, um, it was pretty clear that the uh, humpbacks probably didn't know that there was a seal on the ice there because they don't, they can't see out of the water like that, and they didn't lift their heads up. So at that point, we had to uh, change our explanation, and we just figured that these mammal-eating killer whales, they're silent when they're hunting, but when they start attacking, they can be quite vocal. So we figured they were vocalizing, and the, the uh, humpbacks just heard the noise and came over. And like most animals, they don't like predators in the neighborhood, even if they're not predators on them, and try to drive them off. This is uh, it's called mobbing behavior. Is the idea here that, that this time you were kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe they just heard the sounds of killer whales causing trouble, and that it was a sort of a knee-jerk reaction to that because the humpback whales might be thinking, oh, there might be a a, a young humpback whale nearby and we need just by, by sort of a knee-jerk reaction to the noise of killer whales that they would be enacted to sort of come and break up the party, so to speak. Yes. I, it's like uh, in your neighborhood, you've probably seen small birds mobbing hawks or crows. Uh, when there's a predator around in general, most animals that are considered prey will uh, try to drive them off if they can, and certainly humpbacks can can do that with killer whales. Yeah, magpies do this a lot in my back garden. When the fox comes, the magpies go yeah, crazy right. and try and shoo off the, the fox, not because it's attacking them, but because it has the potential to attack. And and to alert others in the neighborhood yeah. that you know that that this thing is here. And once you take away the element of surprise, quite often they just move on. So, a few days later, we found our, our group of killer whales again, and they were trying to wash a, a Weddell seal off an ice flow. And there was another pair of humpbacks there, and they were probably 50 meters off, sitting there, but still clearly agitated. Um, you know, when they start breathing heavily, it's because they know that the killer whales are around. And the killer whales washed the seal off the ice flow, and then the seal just started swimming out apparently randomly in into the open water and the killer whales start coming in but the seal ended up going straight towards where these humpbacks were and just as it got to the first humpback the humpback rolled over on its back and then lifted its chest up out of the water with the seal right on top of it and wow. there was some there was some splashing around and stuff. The killer whales saw the humpbacks and uh, veered away. They didn't want to mess around with the, these humpbacks. And uh, there was uh, quite a bit of splashing around and stuff at the surface. I think the, the, the seal was probably about as surprised at this, what happened here as we were. And then there was uh, more splashing around. The seal 
uh, finally gets off. He's clearly panicked by the whole thing because he's being chased by predators and he, you know, something's lifted him up out of the water and he doesn't know what's going on. So he eventually slides off and, and swims away and gets to some other ice. So we weren't quite sure what to make of all that. And then the, one of the cameramen came up and said, hey, you got to check out this footage. So we looked at his footage and it's quite clear that as the seal uh, is lifted up out of the water on this humpback's chest, the water starts to slide off and the seal starts to slide off with it. And you can see that the humpback whale very carefully takes this one-ton flipper and nudges this probably 250-kilogram seal back into the middle of its chest. Wow. Anyway, once we saw this, it was very clear that the humpbacks were actually trying to protect this seal from the killer whales. Mm. And so this is what's really interesting. You've, you've gotten sort of a hint of it the first time, but the third time, incontrovertible evidence that these humpback whales were protecting the seals from these killer whales. And when we think about altruism or the, the actions of an animal, uh, the so-called selfish gene, is, um, as it's been described, that doesn't make sense because these animals don't have any reason to protect seals at all, right? There's no benefit to helping these seals as far as we know. Is that right? That's correct. Animals are driven by self-interest. And uh, you, you try to avoid altruism explanations uh, as much as you can. And so we had to give this some thought. We came back, did a literature review, contacted all of our uh, colleagues, put a, a posting out on a, a marine mammal website. And uh, we ended up with like 115 different interactions between killer whales and humpbacks. And some of them were relatively trivial. But we, we found out that the majority of times that humpbacks and killer whales were together, humpbacks initiated it, the uh, interaction. And it was something like 83% of the time, those interactions were while the killer whales were attacking other marine mammals, or in one case, uh, uh, ocean sunfish, which is a giant fish. So, wow. So it was clear that this happened regularly. Um, we had trouble convincing people people that humpbacks were actually doing this behavior. Uh, and so before, before we published our paper on it, we needed to come up with a reason why, why humpbacks would, would be willing to do this. Because altruism is kind of a controversial subject and, and difficult to explain uh, in the case, especially of, of wild animals. So, right. so what we came up with was um, humpbacks feed in high latitudes and, and quite often in polar waters, but they breed in, in tropical latitudes. For instance, in the North Pacific, Alaskan humpbacks uh, go to southern Mexico or they go to the Hawaiian Islands, and that's where they have their calves. When the females have their calves, the calves will stay with them for about a year, which means the calf gets to see the, uh, the breeding grounds, then goes with the mother to the feeding grounds, and then quite often back to the breeding grounds. So they, they know these areas, and they, by and large, will continue going to those same areas for the rest of their lives. And what this means is, if you're a humpback whale, in, especially in feeding areas where the killer whales are particularly abundant, um, you are much more likely to be related to individual humpbacks in that area than you are to the population as a whole, which means if there's humpback whales around you, they could easily be uh, related 
They could be nieces and uncles and grandchildren. Right. So th there is some incentive there to help out individuals, individual humpbacks, if they're being attacked. And that's what we think is going on, why the humpbacks respond at all. So this, this is what we call kin selection. And as human beings, we know that we are much more likely to help somebody who's related to us than somebody who's not. Hmm. And animals do the same thing. But, but that doesn't explain why humpbacks would help a completely different species. So that, that does open up a different uh, situation. And so what we offered was two possibilities. One is humpbacks are uh, not all that bright. They're, they're kind of like cattle or something. And they like relatively simple instructions. And though that instruction might be when you hear killer whales attacking, go over and break it up regardless. Uh, that makes things easier for them. They don't have to learn how to identify different species. And um, so that would be helpful. Another thing is uh, if killer whales are attacking in your area, uh, the best thing to do is go drive them off. Uh, they may not be attacking a, a related humpback now, but they may attack a related humpback sometimes further down the line. So Look, best I, just to drive them off. I realize that, that you know it seems like you know you you're, you came together and just tossed some ideas out and see what might fit. But it seems to me that it's these are kind of long shots in a way because if if that was the case, then you know you're expending a huge amount of energy and put potentially putting yourself in danger attacking these dangerous animals at a very low payoff because if you're, you're protecting every species from orcas and as you say like there's sunfish and all sorts of different types of of animals that these humpbacks have been seen protecting if you're doing that all the time it seems like an enormous waste of time effort resources and putting yourself in danger for the rare reward of it actually being a humpback whale which you would expect an animal like that would to be able to recognize if a humpback whale was in danger because most other species would do the same well, again, I think just trying to chase chase these bad boys out of the neighborhood has benefits uh, in itself. Mm. I mean, it, it, absolutely, but it does seem like a lot of effort just just for that payoff. On the other hand, saving other species uh, has no payoff. Mm. So even a small payoff is something. At least we can come up with something here that does offer some payoff. It seems and like you're you're trying your hardest not to let humpback whales be just awesome superheroes of the sea. Yeah, with no <laughs> payoff. As a biologist, you have to say, why would they do this? Mm. And just being nice doesn't doesn't do it. Well, are, are there other suggestions you've got from uh, from other people who've read the paper and reviewed it and, and and come up with their own hypotheses? Have you got anything that sticks that sounds? And I hate to say this because I don't. I, you know, you're the expert here, but to me, the non-expert, it doesn't sound super convincing. The, the the ideas that have come up. Would you? Are you satisfied with these ideas as 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 an explanation for why humpback whales would protect calves? Well, it's kind of a minimal payoff, but these are really big animals and. The adult humpbacks are not afraid of, of killer whales. And even a small payoff, I think, makes it worth their while. And nobody's come up with a better explanation. We wrote this paper about five years ago, and uh, our explanation sits there, and we're waiting for somebody to respond. I, and I don't, I don't think that they will because, again, there's, there's no payoff to being uh, vigilantes of the sea and, and protecting other other species, uh, there's no payoff other than, than what we've offered here. 
No, but you didn't answer my question um, completely, Robert. Are you satisfied when you think about it logically and you kind of think about all the effort that goes into protecting every animal that you might get a marginal benefit there? You know, when we think about cost and um, um, reward, do you, does that sit really well with you, the theory that you have at the moment? Yeah, and I can't, neither I nor anybody else has come up with any possible better explanation. Mm -hmm. And I think it is uh, relatively low cost. Uh, I think they're during the feeding season, they're fat and they've got a lot of time on their hands and not, nothing better to do than to try to prevent uh, related humpbacks from being taken out by killer whales. Well, it's a really fascinating story. Uh, and thank you so much for taking us through your work. Bob Pittman is a marine ecologist at the Marine Mammal Institute in Oregon State. Thanks so much, Bob. Okay, you're welcome. Love that piece. Um, so what do you think? Is it possible that these humpback whales are being truly altruistic? Is that even possible in animals? Have you witnessed an altruistic dog or cat uh, on Instagram or even at home? You can email us, science.newstalk.com with your stories. Uh, we get to all of those in the podcast. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, and there is, you're a philosopher. Uh, Aidan McKelvey joins us, um, producer of the program, to go through some of your comments from last week. You're a philosopher, right? There is a question about whether or not anything is altruistic, right? That is one of the questions that people ask. There's no it? question about me being a philosopher. <laughs> I'll take that. Right, okay. <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if being a, having done philosophy makes you a philosopher, but I'm going to take it. Um, I think there are, yeah, I think there are acts that are selfless. It's like there's an episode, I think, of Friends where. Phoebe is trying to find a selfless act. That's right. And they they keep saying to her, well, you you know, she say I think in the end she saves some bee and they're like, well, you feel good about that now and she's like, yeah, damn it, it's not selfless. But that that's kind of changing the definition of selfless. Like if something doesn't benefit you materially, materially and it makes you feel good. That doesn't mean it's selfish. It just means you're a good person. A person who feels good f feels good about doing something that doesn't benefit them materially. That is, that, that's a selfless act or as close to a selfless act as you can get. As close as a selfless yeah. act. I'll give you that. As close as to yeah. a selfless act as as you, as you can. Um, and I, I've spoken to you about this, about um, anonymous donations. Where Yeah, you don't like anonymous donations. I don't donations. like anonymous donations. <laughs> I think they're self-serving. I think you feel great to you about yourself, but, the, but people don't know. Um, people, I think people should know that if you're that you're giving, I think people more people will give if they know that you're giving and how much you're giving. That's that's what I think. That's interesting because most people would say the non-anonymous donation is more likely to be self-serving than the anonymous donation because you don't get you don't gain anything. Like in both cases, you know that you gave the donation, but in one case, other people also know. So it's you true. Can... But what I do is I poison the well. So I say I gave in money. Many ways. <laughs> I, gave, I gave money and it was a lot of money. And people go, that guy's a dick. And then I counteract my feeling of being good by feeling bad. Wow. That's, a true selfless act. That's, like, that's psychologically <laughs> worrying that you feel the need to do that to yourself. No. It's I'm all sure. right to feel good about your donation. <laughs> I, I, I genuinely do feel uncomfortable in situations where I've done something good. I don't, I like to ruin it psychologically I don't know what it is not that I don't do good things I do actually do good things but I hate knowing that I've done something good what is that about let's not spend some time <laughs> exploring that on the program <laughs> this week on yeah this week on the chair <laughs> um, John on, on the couch uh, right uh, let's go to some of your comments from last week shall we uh, we were talking about um, baby talk 
and uh, the the sort of sounds that we use uh, when we talk to babies. And th- there was research trying to look at, do we talk like in different languages? And um, the answer is kind of. Um, <laughs> and uh, often is. And uh, someone has texted in um, saying, Gaelge uses a massive amount of vowels. It has 10 vowels and close to 20 voicings of those vowels, um, which is good. And then I was wondering, uh, you know, what's the max? I'm always looking for the est. And oh, the yeah. most est uh, vowels used in a language is ta, which is a, um, a small language spoken in Namibia and Botswana. It has 31 vowels and, depending on your source, 58 or 150 consonants. Wow. Which, which would make a very difficult game of Scrabble when does, you think about it. Does the excess vowels, like in Gaelga or in Ta, does that mean that then you would do more baby talk? Because wasn't, wasn't weren't they saying that it's to accent, you accentuate the vowels because the, the kid needs to learn the vowel sounds. So would you talk even more ludicrously if you were talking in Gaelga because you need to teach them more vowel sounds? Is that, is that what happens? I don't know. Um, I'm trying to think of... Would it, would I mean would an English speaker using speaking in Irish, would they use an like an English style baby talk, but just using Irish words, or is there a? Oh, do you know what? Forget it. I'm wasting too much time on this one. <laughs> God, what is wrong with me today? Uh, on gamification, we were talking about um, how. Uh, companies are using gamification to uh, mine our data and do other weird things. Someone says, uh, I tried games for language encoding. I found that they were a scam pretty quickly. There's no substitute for doing exercises slowly, such as reading in a different language or doing graded coding problems from a book without being shown the solution. So um, that person tried to sort of use gaming to to speed up their learning. Yeah, I, I mean, Duolingo didn't really do much for me, to be honest, even though it was kind of fun pissing off the bird. <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't really learn a huge amount extra from Duolingo, I don't think. Yeah, we're always we're always striving for that. Can I get this result without any of the work? It's like those um those ab plates that make your shock your abs and then you end up <laughs> you end up looking like an Adonis, but like <laughs> those Adonis guys have done lots of workout and then just throw it on the plate for the ad. Yeah, it's not yeah exactly. Work. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Those things do not work. Although they're fun. Have you ever done them? No, I haven't actually. It's- it's awesome. fun to get shocked. Awesome fun. Yeah, because they cramp. They What they do is you wrap this sort of thing around your waist. I remember we got one in Spain and someone was trying to hock this nonsense and we were like, okay, what does it do exactly? And it, it basically contracts all your muscles. And so it's like um, it's like someone almost like giving you a hug really quick. It's actually more than like a, like a bear hug. It's kind of like, um, you know when you retch? <laughs> Yes. It's like continuous retching. <laughs> it doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> it is quite fun though because it's kind of tickly. It's not bad retching because you don't have the vomiting with it. It's just like you go... We're finding out all, things, all sorts of things about you today. You don't like feeling good about things. You find retching fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I, I'm certainly a tainted product. Dear Jonathan et al, um, this is about the dart... Um, project that NASA managed to ping an asteroid just slightly off course. More than they thought, though. A good bit off off course than they thought. They were going to see if they could nudge it a bit, but they nudged it a lot. And that is well within the bounds of error that if we ever see something that size, we can sort of get it to not hit Earth uh, if we we catch it in time. Owen says, 
Jonathan, um, I'm sorry, but I'm I the only one who's slightly concerned that some of the Earth's greatest minds miscalculated the shift in the asteroid's orbit by such a large amount. There's a big difference between the predicted 10 minutes and actual 32 minutes. That's a large degree of error. Even when they said 73 seconds would have been a success, I was like, what? Is this not just a slightly more complicated form of snooker? I, for one, will not be sleeping tonight, sadly thinking, oh, these guys have got this one nailed. No asteroids are obliterating me tonight. Your longtime listener and now bordering insomniac Owen. Do you know, it's a good point because if you say, if you look, if you, you know, if you've got a, a, a white ball and a, a red ball, right, and you're trying to get it in the pocket and you think, oh, well, I've got to do it about 30 degrees. If you're off by a whole load, then fine, it, it, you know, it might not be that much of a problem. But if you can't predict by a long chalk where it's going to go, then you might pot the black. Yeah, it's it's like a guy going, I can pot this ball to save your life. And then they like, take a shot at the corner pocket, goes the whole way around the table, hits off the oaks and goes into a different pocket. They're like, told you. <laughs> don't worry about it. I've got it. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think, you know, if you're, I'm surprised that they didn't just go, yes, it achieved the exact angle we thought it would. It was a real like... Wow, we actually moved it loads. That 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 lack of accuracy, particularly when we're talking about moving giant hunks of rock in space, I, I share your concern. Yeah, and are you sure you moved it loads in the right direction? Because moving it loads in the wrong direction would be a bad thing. Well, um, something to think about, folks. That's it from us on Future Proof. Thanks to Aidan McKelvey, Sinead Kyo, Steve Daunt, and Hugo De Silva on sound. Thank you for listening. We'll be back on Tuesday with more Future Proof in this exact same podcast feed. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.